to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining me here is Jed Brewer. Hello. We are once again not joined by regular co-host Lee Younger. He is not still taking down a high school musical set one week later. We're uh, recording back to back. So a little peek behind the curtain. Still without Lee. And I mean, when I say high school musical, a musical that was performed at Oakridge High School. I don't mean the movie High School Musical, but I am now curious if there is a stage play of High School Musical that can be performed by high school drama teams, a High School Musical, High School Musical. That, I really hope that exists. That would make me very happy. Yeah, real, real Inception moment there, but it's not Inception. But I would also like to see uh, teenagers do a, a stage production of Inception. <laughs> I would take a musical version, honestly, of any of Nolan's movies. Oh, right. Yeah, I like that a lot. Dude, Interstellar, the musical, that could be super cool. Yep. Interstellar, Memento, the musical. There's lots of songs about memory. Yeah, that's totally true. And isn't it time for a Batman musical? Absolutely. Has anyone done that? I feel like... There was some like some unlicensed thing that did that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there was. There was I, maybe like there's an episode of the animated series where he does a musical number. But I'm not sure. I f- have a feeling Jed and I are both Googling Batman musical at the same time. Yeah, we are. We are. It looks like there's kind of a few things, actually. Holy musical Batman is a music musical with music and lyrics. Uh a parody musical based upon DC Universe's Dark Knight comics, as well as the 1989 film and 2008's The Dark Knight. Oh, productions in 2012 in Chicago. How about that? This is fascinating. Some stills from this thing are incredible. <laughs> Nonetheless, that is, that is not what's happening. It also looks like they tried to make a musical adaptation of the, um, the, the 80s Batman, the one with um, Michael Keaton. Keaton. Yeah. But it basically got stuck in development hell and we'll probably never see the light of day. That's awesome. It's great that we got three Ant-Man movies. I can't get a <laughs> Batman musical. Yeah. Way to go, Warner Brothers. I mean, I know why he doesn't, but I, I really would like it if James Gunn came out and was just like, started announcing fake projects just to make the worst people on the internet very mad. Oh yeah, that would be incredible. Batman's going to be played by a woman. You mean you're making a Batwoman movie? Is that what I nope. said? Batman <laughs> is going to be played by a woman. Yeah. Well, we turn from that to... Something um, equally ridiculous. Something equally ridiculous, but in a very different way. That's right. It's time for a Gospel Coalition emergency. It's a doozy. And, you know, this is going to seem like a bit, and it's only half a bit. I don't recall us ever doing a content warning on this program, but... You're about to get one. This gets weird, y'all. Weird to the point where we felt compelled to share it, and also it gets very funny, but it is strange, and here is... How we, I personally justify uh, in engaging with this is because they printed it on the gospelcoalition.org. So functionally, if you're a Christian, I don't think you can get mad at us for reading words that are printed on the Gospel Coalition. So if you go, if you click a link to this story currently, here's what it lands on. The Gospel Coalition, uncategorized, beautiful union book is the headline. March 1st, 2023, with the byline of just staff. Dear readers, thank you for your feedback on the Keller Center's book excerpt from author here, posted March 1st, 2023, and thank you for your patience while we took the time to listen to our critics and the serious objections from concerned fellows, as well as discuss this matter with our board of directors and care for our friend Josh, who's the author here. Earlier this week, we accepted Josh's resignation as a Keller Center fellow He will no longer lead an online cohort with the center nor speak at TGC 23. He will no longer participate in the events. Josh remains a beloved brother and friend whom we respect and care deeply about. 
And goes on, da-da-da-da, Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which is a real thing that exists, not something I made up to make fun of, if you can imagine that. Boo-de-boo-de-bob-de-boo. Uh, sincerely, uh, for Christ and his gospel, Julius Kim, president of the Gospel Coalition. So you may wonder, what on earth led to this <laughs> kind of response? I wonder indeed. Was it something theological? Was it uh, somebody say something... Uh, very controversial politically. And the controversy is that the thing that got printed was so unsettlingly weird <laughs> that they had to go to that length. Y'all are going to think we're making this up. We assure you, what you're about to hear is verbatim. Yeah, there's. you can check on online yourself. There's a number of screenshots still floating around. From the Gospel Coalition, it was a book excerpt from, I don't know, whatever the title of that was that we just read, Blessed Union, I think. Something like that. So, it reads thusly. We're going to read a few excerpts, and they're going to get worse. I'm warning you for <laughs> now. Generosity and hospitality are both embodied in the sexual act. Think about it. Generosity involves giving extravagantly to someone. You give the best you've got to give, lavishly pouring out your time, energy, or money. At a deeper level, generosity is giving not just your resources, but your very self. Okay, we're going to pause there. So far, a little, like, I don't know if we need to know that, but, Jed, tell me if you have a different opinion. I would say this is standard. Your pastor is going for an analogy. He's trying to, like, prove that this is a cool church where we're not buttoned up about talking about sex, but I still want to do it in a... It's just a gospel metaphor way. And it's like a little weird, but we're all willing to like just kind of wait for it to be over. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're to, to my you know estimate, we're at about 12% overcooked right now. It's overcooked, but it's uh, bring it in for a landing pastor and we can all go about our day. Yeah. You know, the uh, you know, Song of Solomon, the, the metaphor, Bride of Christ, it's all, it's, as Jed points out, 12% overcooked, but we're we're not out there yet. Here we go. <laughs> We're back in. And what deeper form of self-giving is there than sexual union where the husband pours out his very presence, not only upon, but within his wife. Uh-huh. Dear listener, it is important <laughs> to me that you understand that upon and within are both italicized in the text. <laughs> not only... Did he write it? He went back and said, I want to make sure they don't they really don't miss this part. We read on. Hospitality, on the other hand, involves receiving the life of the other. You prepare space for your guest to enter your home, welcoming him warmly into your circle of intimacy to share your dwelling place with you. I don't want to go to this guy's house. <laughs> no. To have, if you were like going to a new church or met someone in the pastor said, Oh, it's so great. Why don't you all come on over to, why don't you all come over to the house after, after the service for lunch? And we're going to, we're going to make a big, a big pot of chili and love to have you. Oh, that's nice. And welcome to our home. And if when you got there, he said, we're so happy to be receiving your life here into our circle of intimacy. Yeah. You leave. You'd be like, well, look at the time. Nope. <laughs> But again, not finished. Dwelling plays with you. Here again, the deeper form of hospitality is there than the sexual union where the wife welcomes her husband into the sanctuary of her very self. I feel like if we were more prepared, we could have pulled phrases out of this and played Gospel Coalition article or a romance novel that you used to be able to buy at the grocery store. Yeah, that's that's incredible. The yeah, sanctuary yeah. of her very self. <laughs> so we got, I understand, and we apologize if you have pulled your earphones out of your ear and it was such velocity that it damaged them. Yeah. Or yeah. wrecked your car or whatever, but we we press on for journalistic integrity. There's more. Somehow this gets worse. And I want you to think <laughs> yourself, how could this get worse? Wait for it. From the same article. The Hebrew language is on to something. However, there's a distinction between the male and female roles in sexual union. 
which brings something unique to the fusing of two bodies as one, and his distinction is iconic. On that honeymoon in Cabo, the groom goes into his bride. He is not only with his beloved, but within his beloved. Again, with and within, both italicized. He enters the sanctuary of his spouse, where he pours out his deepest presence and bestows an offering, a gift, a sign of his pilgrimage that has the potential to grow within her into new life. Why did you write that? (laughs) Why did you publish that? Why did a book agent read that and think, I think we should put this into bookstores? And why did the Gospel Coalition, which I remind you is on the internet, think, yeah, put that on the site, what could go wrong? Yeah, probably fine. Of all the weirdness in that, and it's so much weirdness, um, I love how they had to fit in some weird homophobia with male and female roles in sexual union or they're distinct and iconic. It's a very weird use of the term iconic. Acting like they're Madonna or something. Sure. And also the detail of on that honeymoon in Cabo. Yeah. Trying to be relatable. We get it. You're from, you're white and from the suburbs. Hooray for knowing your audience. You did not have to specify Cabo. <laughs> Pilgrimage, bestowing an offering, a gift. Jed, why are they like this? Man, that's a good question. I think the here's my one hope, right? And and you know, in, in, not in all situations, but in many bad situations, and this is certainly a bad situation. There yeah. there can be you know, silver linings, you know, sources for joy. And here's one possible silver lining: is that the book? Because this is an excerpt from the student's book, right? Yes, as I understand it. So that the book is, it's, the book's exactly what we think it is, except that the cover art is in true dime store romance novel fashion, is a painting of him as like a sailor, you know, and he's got shirt unbuttoned to the navel and like super long blonde hair blowing in the breeze. Like that would be pretty amazing if they went full bore and that's the cover art on his theology book. Yeah. That would it would stand out at the Christian bookstore <laughs> if there was still such a thing. Here's the part I don't I can't wrap my mind around, and Jed maybe can help me here. Okay. So they published this on the Gospel Coalition. Right. And apparently we're so surprised that people pointed out that this is massively weird that they had a board meeting, <laughs> booted this guy from his Keller Center fellowship. <laughs> Pulled the article, uh, whole thing, wrote a staff byline article. Is the Gospel Coalition staffed by so such a kind of Christian bubble, white evangelical, homeschool, reading all the same books, not watching, you know, secular movies, that multiple people read that and thought, I don't see anything funny about this? I think that is very possible, my friend. I think that's probably it, but I do like to think, going back to the Batman analogies, that there is one Joker, Loki-like agent of chaos <laughs> who just, you know, was trying to see how far this thing could get. Yeah, yeah. It is I the mean, line from The Dark Knight of, I'm, I'm just a dog chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. <laughs> they printed it. They printed the, the book. They put it on the website. And tweeted it? Oh. Are you suggesting that whoever this guy is, is actually kind of a God-tier, Andy Kaufman-esque parody artist, and this has all just been an incredible act in social commentary against the sexual proclivities of evangelical Christians? That's entirely possible. I guess I'm giving the alternate explanation of this book is entirely sincere, but somebody who works for the Keller Center, the Gospel Coalition, or whatever was like, it'd be really funny if we put this on the website. <laughs> and just kind of, you know, assumed, kept assuming that it would, like, just messing with their editor of, like, we're, we're going to submit this. Shannon's going to lose it when she reads it. It'll be, it'll be a riot. And then just kind of someone was out of office and it got rubber stamped and just boom, yeah. on the website. Also, yeah. speaking of on the website, while I'm here, 
Yeah. Uh, here are the top five now trending stories on the Gospel Coalition. All right. Uh, number one, help. I work for a pastor with low emotional intelligence. Okay. Number two, downplaying the sin of homosexuality won't win the next generation. Uh, I okay. assume they're referring to the Star Trek series. Yeah, absolutely. Number three, should we cancel Carl Barth, Martin Luther, and Jonathan Edwards? Uh, one of those three, definitely. Yeah, if you read some of his some of his later stuff. Uh, number four, parent, meet your teen. I don't know what that means. And number five, eight marks of a sluggard. <laughs> wow. Which I might click into that one. But before we yeah. go there, here, here's my question, Jed. Yeah. What do any of those things have to do with the gospel? Uh, not a not a darn thing, as far as I can tell. And and many of them are pretty clearly pointed in the opposite direction. Yeah. If we go over to the the most read next to it, number one is this beautiful union book retraction. And then you get, should Christian parents send their children to public schools? Ordinary and extraordinary, a day at the Asbury Awakening. Nine things you should know about Mormonism, which sounds like a clickbait article. And I really like yeah. that. Uh, the burning question about from Asbury isn't about Asbury. Tim Keller on the decline and renewal of the American church. And another thing about Asbury, which again, uh, what do any of those things have to do with the, the gospel coalition? Are you? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We weren't planning this, but let's look at eight marks of a sluggard. Dude, I'm I'm ready. I need hot <clears throat> sluggard takes. This well, they're not that hot because this article is from October 6, 2019. Oh, not hot at all then. Still in the trending, which is I'm not sure about that. Over the past several years, I've discovered and reg- through regularly reading Proverbs is an immediate and useful practice. One thing I am brought face to face with the sluggard. Uh-huh. As I read and linger over passages that speak of the lazy man. My heart is exposed, and I'm convinced of my tendency toward idleness and sloth. <laughs> we, we talked about ChatGPT last week, and this has big, ChatGPT, write me a Reformed Gospel Coalition article. I read this <laughs> yes. thing in the Bible, and I realized it sh- that I should feel bad. <laughs> also, an- weird antiquated language. Yeah. Uh, to quote uh, Proverbs 6.6, 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. All right, so into the listicle. Number one, the sluggard will not start things. Okay. I mean, like, in the spirit of don't start none, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, that's that's true. Well, to, to the second one, uh, number two, the sluggard will not finish things. Again, depending on what you mean, that's not necessarily a problem. Yes, on the their own types of proverbs of don't start none, won't be none, and I don't start fights, I finish them. So far, I think the sluggard's coming out ahead. Sluggard's looking pretty peaceful. Number three, the sluggard will not face hard things. Uh, that's not really a, a question of, like, that's it. I see the guilt thing you're going for, but that, that's more like a courage and cowardice thing than like a, a sluggard thing. I think you're in the wrong list. Yeah, here, here's their justification for that, which is interesting. The sluggard will also refuse to face hard tasks. To mask his laziness, he will find refuge in cowardly excuses like, quote, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Proverb 22:13. That That's not cowardly. That's not a cowardly <laughs> excuse. There's a line. Don't go on the street. I don't think the point of Proverbs 22 is you should go fight lions. Dude, I love. Okay. Quick, quick side note. All right. So, A, I love the idea of, of escalating and elevating the Protestant work ethic to a superpower. <laughs> I love, I really love that, which means I need a James Gunn movie where the hero is powered by the Protestant work ethic. That's, I need to know who that superhero or, or villain, I guess. Like, I need to know who that is because I want that James Gunn story. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of that just being Lex Luthor, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of in an all-star Superman way. The reason he hates Superman is because I worked hard for all this. <laughs> he just got it because he's an immigrant. <laughs> Lex Luthor is the Protestant work ethic. Oh, man. There's a well, that yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot in there that's true. <laughs> Number four, the sluggard is anxious and restless. Now you're just describing mental conditions. Yeah, people don't have anxiety because they're sluggardly. Number five, the sluggard has constant trouble. What? There may be financial trouble or live in perpetual messiness at home. 
There's a little, little Dave Ramsey in there. If you're poor because you're sluggardly, that's cool. Uh, the sluggard is a nuisance to others. That makes it sound like a weird 90s movie. Yeah. Like John Logozamo is the pest. <laughs> and Jamie Kennedy is the sluggard. <laughs> the sluggard won't become a leader. Seems seems fine. Uh, so, yeah, again, I got all the way through that, and there was no gospel in that Gospel Coalition article, so... Feel bad! <laughs> the collection of our own weird neuroses put on page for you to uh, ingest Coalition. I guess I guess the URL was too long. <laughs> dude, why on earth? All right, so, like, where we started, right? Where we started was a dude who, I mean, this is not, it's not good. But somewhere in there, I think there was a desire to talk about sex being a good and beautiful thing, which I, sure. I can at least appreciate that maybe that's where we started with the slug. It's a useful counterpoint to the way a lot of these things talk about sex. Yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas with the sluggard thing, dude, you're just looking for stuff to feel bad about. Like there's nothing redemptive here at all. You're just like the reasons I suck. Let me count the ways. What? Why are you doing this? To the Mark Driscoll thing we were talking about last week, isn't the Gospel Coalition supposed to be like the the Bible-knowing Tim Keller apologetics brigade? I, I read Proverbs all the time. Here's what I took away from, from it. People with anxiety are lazy. <laughs> Come on, man. Dude. Swing and a miss, Chet. Wow. Well, I, you know, I feel uplifted. Absolutely. I feel like the gospel has been ministered unto me. Well, I, it was by accident if it happened. <laughs> With that said, we'll declare, merge the off. That went to ways that, I'm going to be honest with you folks, we had a little pre-show huddle here and we thought, can we actually read these passages on our podcast where we say the scandalous things? And uh, I, I think the sluggard was a nice palate cleanser. I think that worked out quite nicely. Thank you, Gospel yeah. Coalition, for filling <laughs> your website with so much nonsense. <laughs> That we had a path out. <laughs> We're going to move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can hang out with us all the way to the end. I'll give you some ways to get in touch, or you can scroll down in your episode description. Both links are there. Our first question comes in and says, Whenever I stop doing something, not even quitting necessarily, I get this guilt like I'm doing something wrong. How do I get over that? Well, don't read articles on the Gospel Coalition. Yes. That's step one. Uh, if you're feeling... Like you have an inner sluggard that is that is getting the best of you. But I, I think it's a great question, Jed, and I especially like this the, the caveat they give us of not even necessarily quitting something. Uh yeah. we, we talked about that before. There's a big stigma on quitting. Sure. And that is mostly unearned. Um some of the best feelings of my life have been quitting. Jobs, oh, yes. gym memberships, teams, these kind of things. Sure. Um, there's a there's a unique freedom. But there's also a thing where when something winds down, when it's time to move on to another thing, it goes back to kind of that Protestant work ethic stuff. I think a little bit that we were joking about uh, in in the emergency there of there's just kind of this idea that I should feel bad and I need to look for the reasons to do that. So when we when that kind of comes up naturally or we've been conditioned to do it, how do we go about diagnosing that and nearing ourselves a little bit? It's a great question, and we're super glad that you wrote in. You know, something that it's, I think, first of all, is the way forward is going to be developing some new skills. And that's actually really super good news because skills are something you can build and you can get better at over time. And so the fact that it's really hard today doesn't mean that it has to be really hard in the future. So there's there's a lot of hope here. A skill that I've been working on for a while that actually brings me a lot of joy is in all kinds of situations. That includes attending a social event or, you know, um, I don't know, uh, having, you know, having a rich dessert or um, uh, uh, going for a walk is getting to a point where I'm able to say to myself, I have had as much of this as I wish to have. I have enjoyed what I have had, and now I am ready for something else. And that is really, really cool, man. I didn't grow up with that skill. That wasn't really a part of my my family experience. But there's this really cool thing about, for me, about, you know, um, I, I feel like going for a walk. I have walked for 13 minutes. That's as much walk as I want. 
I am now done with my walk and I'm moving on to the next thing. That there's this there's a freeing thing, but there's also an enjoyment thing. Like for me, when I'm able to say I had in a sense an appetite for something, I had a desire to do something, and then I went and I did it, but I did it to the proportion that I felt like doing it. I think it's a lot easier for me to look back on that experience and enjoy it and and savor it and be glad that I had it because, again, in a a sense of human agency, I got to do the exact thing that I wanted to do. I'll give you an example in my life. A few years ago, I got into car racing, and I did a bit of that, and I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it. And then I reached a point where it's like, you know what? I've done about as much of that as I think I want to do for now. I'm going to move. It's a fun hobby. It's also very time intensive and and I'm I'm ready to do something else. I'm really glad that I did it. I'm going to move on to the next thing. I want to encourage you that that is a skill worth developing and it's going to involve giving yourself permission. It's going to involve kind of letting you be the boss of your own life. And I want to encourage you to to ask and, and kind of think through in a thought experiment sense. What do I actually gain from forcing myself to continue to do things that I don't really want to do anymore? Like, suppose you get invited to a party, right? Like, ah, you know, I'll I'll go. And you've been there for an hour, and your heart and your brain are both like, you know what, that's about enough of this party. I'm glad I came. Um, I'm going to move on. What do you gain from forcing yourself to stay longer? Is there some kind of strategic advantage? Is there like a delicious joy that's waiting for you, but you have to, it, it only kicks in at hour two at the party. Is there, you know, you, you, you hope that you'll be reunited with a long lost friend, but they only show up at hour three. Like there needs to be a reason why we are telling ourselves no, right? Your, your brain and your heart are like that. That's enough of that party. There needs to be a reason why we're telling ourselves no, other than just what's well, it's bad to, to stop things before an arbitrary point. That's you should stop whenever you want to. That's that's the nature of being you like having having the freedom to make your own decisions is awesome, man. You should absolutely do that. And I think one of the things that this black and white thinking of never quit anything, never stop anything. One of the things that that misses is life is about seasons. Everything occurs in a season. Almost nothing in your life lasts your whole life. And, and actually anything that's around that long is divided into seasons anyway. Like if you, if you have children in your life, right? Like, I mean, you know, you're a parent the whole time, but being a parent to a one-year-old and being a parent to a 10-year-old are two very different things. These are, these are different seasons, you know? I mean, in a sense, it's one thing, but the, the seasons are very, very different. The idea of you should just do the same thing forever isn't even really possible and trying to make it happen is very, rarely beneficial. But in fact, there are so many benefits from listening to your heart and listening to your brain and listening to your body on all kinds of pursuits and activities and adventures of like, I've had enough of this. I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I think when we ignore that, we're in danger of losing the joy of the thing that we are doing and have done and missing out on the joy that the next thing stands ready to offer us. Oh, yeah, it's all great stuff. And I would add to that as as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking of there are definitely some people who are wired that way of once I I do something, I get into it, I dive in, I'm just going for it. I, this, this becomes my new personality and I just live this. So it feels weird to drop it. But I think there's also a lot of people who aren't like that, but feel like they should be a lot of people who just, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I read that book. Oh, there's a series. Did you read all seven? No, I read, the, I read the first one. It was good. What happened? I was, you know, started reading something else. Or, oh, yeah, I, I watched I watched two seasons of that show. Did you finish it? No. Nah, maybe I should. Uh, there's a weird kind of, but there is a very completionist uh, get in there, commit kind of thing that you get from cultural stuff. And I wonder how much that comes from uh, growing up and there's, there, I think there's a lot of things like this where yes, probably all of us as a kid did something where it was either, you know, a class or a team or a skill or something that we were trying to do and hit the first bump in the road or so. And it was like, oh, I want to quit. And you got the speech from your parents about, no, you know, we got, you got to stick it out and for whatever reason, because it builds character, because we already paid for this whole season or whatever it is. And to Jed's point about seasons, I think that's fine when you're, 
for young people, I think there is some kind of skill to being able to stick to something. If you never stick to anything, that's that could be a problem. But like a lot of things, when you're young and developing skills and ideas, once you can do it, there's no longer any utility to doing it just for the sake of doing it. Yep. Like, yes, you, you should be able to push through something that's difficult and get to the other side and learn about how that's rewarding and, you know, learn have that good feeling about yourself. I didn't think I could do this and I did it. But you can't do that with everything. Yeah. That's not, that's just not a tenable way to live. There's nothing. Um, I think maybe a lot of us when we were kids had the, had the closet of shame of here's the tennis racket and here's the Taekwondo <laughs> uniform and here's, you know, the chemistry set. And, but when you're an adult and you're doing things not to prove anything about your character, but, but because it was fun and you enjoy it, there's nothing wrong with that. You did it. You liked it or you didn't like it, which is also fine. And you, you're kind of done with it. You moved on to the next thing. I also think there's an aspect here of the hustle culture type of things yeah. of like develop the skill until that can become your, you, you do not have to do that. Nope. If you like painting, you do not have to open an Etsy store. If you want to, that's fine. Sure. That's cool. But you don't have to, if you like, um, you like making music or playing music, you, you actually don't have to put that on Bandcamp. You can just play in your room. That's fine. Yeah. Something does not have to yield monetary or any other kind of results to be worth doing. I think that is a, a very, very important point. So we move on to our next segment. We're doing another check-in with how are these weirdos doing? <laughs> and this week's weirdos very much earning the term, uh, televangelist Kenneth Copeland and little buddy, Jesse Duplantis. If you ever, if you lived in the era of actual television channels and ever fell asleep on the couch watching Family Guy or whatever and woke up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday or Sunday, you may have accidentally been exposed to Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis. Um, but they're also very famous for being incredibly rich. I believe Kenneth Copeland's net worth is somewhere in the neighborhood of $90 million. He's the richest televangelist in the world. Oh, way up. Jed's way, giving way me up. a thumbs up and not like the isn't that great kind a bump it up. Uh, let's do a quick Google. I think he's estimated at 700 million. Well, that's depressing. I was going to be sad at 90. So a uh, multi hundred multi centimillionaire kind of Copeland. This dude has, wait, this dude has $700 million and he's still going on TV. Just talking nonsense. In 2021, BeliefNet listed Copeland, the wealthiest pastor in America net worth $760 million. I really thought the sluggard thing was going to be the most depressing thing we read this week, Jed. <laughs> but it wasn't. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you may know, uh, also, if you've ever seen a clip of Kenneth Copeland, it's probably the one where a reporter tries to um, confront him about having, like, his third private jet. Because he's got a bunch. And he, like, flashes this crazy look in his eyes and points his finger at her because he looks like a ventriloquist dummy come to life. And he <laughs> talks about how... He, he justifies it by saying you can't just fly commercial because that's where the, the, the demons get in you from the other people on the airplane. So to that point, uh, we go to this clip. Now, Jesse Duplantis, several of them, the devil tried to kill him on the airplane. And one time, they, he just went up and took the mic away from the stewardess and started praying over the whole thing. Flaps wouldn't come down. That's a bad deal in the big earth. Yes, sir. But they did. <laughs> so I, I like that in that A is apparently Kenneth Copeland implying that Jesse Duplantis is kind of a broke boy who still has to fly commercial. Sure. But I also love the aspect of I'm in the air. I feel like I'm being attacked by demons who are trying to murder me. Somebody get me to a microphone. <laughs> I got to get in front of people and annoy them by praying. Come on, man. <laughs> that's your, that's just your solution for everything. Isn't it guys? 
The, the question is, you guys okay? The answer, no. Yeah. One of these days, we're going to get it. Hey, Christian celebrities, you guys doing okay? And get it. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> Not this week. <laughs> we were telling stories where the devil tried to kill you. And your answer was, I got to get on a mic in front of a bunch of people who don't want to hear it and pray in a way that is explicitly forbidden in the New Testament. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we know that, like, there's only Christians that are listening to any of this. because like no one else will take this seriously. But, like, this kind of content is proof. Like, you're not expecting anyone who's not an evangelical Christian to listen to this because, like, there's no possible way you would expect someone outside of that experience to take you seriously on this. I know it's a point that's been made, and we may mention it on this show over the years, but are you aware of the thing where a lot of like spam emails are intentionally written poorly? Yes, because the idea is if you it's kind of a it's kind of a sifting out methods. The idea is you get the email from the Nigerian prince who needs the thing, and it's broken English and it's um, misspelled because if you would catch on that, hey, this is not. This is not grammatically correct. No one would write like this. They know you're going to be hard to scam. They want to sift you out immediately. And once you know that fact, everything about televangelists you look at through a slightly different lens. Yeah. Good times. The devil tried to kill me on a plane. So instead of like praying just there, I found the nearest amplification device. <laughs> In a way that, I mean, I don't know much, but I imagine just jumping, knocking the stewards out of the way and jumping on the mic, no matter what demonic <laughs> force you were fighting, would end up with you getting put on the no-fly list. Especially if you would explain to them, oh, it's okay, the devil's trying to kill me. <laughs> Dude, if your story sounds like a plot off of a 30 Rock episode, <laughs> you, you really... You really need to rethink things. <laughs> if conceivably they would do a cutaway where Tracy Morgan is yelling the thing <laughs> yeah, that you're exactly saying it. while pitching, while trying to get old people to give you money, <laughs> just roll it back a little bit, man. Well, I, mean, I appreciate the hustle. Yeah. I appreciate it less when you have $700 million. I think you just like hustling, man. Yeah. He loves the game. Yeah, well, one of these days we're going to check in on, hey, you guys doing okay? And we're going to get a yes, but put another another no up on the big board. With that, we move on to our next question. Comes in and says, I feel like my brain is always going to the worst possible scenario. It's exhausting. How do I get better at not doing that? And Jed, um, sometimes we get questions on the show that none of us can relate to. Absolutely. And then sometimes not that. <laughs> Uh, I think it's fair to say we there may be some uh, some collective experience with the the phenomena being talked about here. Um, so where do we start with with the problem, and where do we start with maybe trying to find someone on the other side of it? It's a great question. We're super glad that you wrote in. There's a collection of skills that you can learn that will help with this. So it's every reason to be hopeful. Skills are something you can learn. There's something you can get better at. One of the skills that we want to look at is let's actually take the question seriously. Your brain's like, what about all the terrible things that could happen? If you can dig it, um, there are all kinds of people whose, whose job is to ask that question in all kinds of different situations. And they basically work in, in various forms of risk management. And here's the two things that you want to look at when you're considering worst case scenarios. The first is, what's the likelihood of this bad outcome? Like my brain's very concerned about it, but, but what is the likelihood I'm going to be, I am going to Cabo for my honeymoon because apparently that's what people do. What if I am devoured by a wild hippopotamus while I'm there? Well, the percent likelihood of that is very low because to the best of my knowledge, they do not have hippopotami in, um, in Cabo. So you're telling me there's not a chance that at least one cartel guy has a hippo in his compound that could get out, Jed? See, I'm glad you asked because the possibility of a cartel hippo cannot be removed. So we rate the percent likelihood of this at about 0.001%. It's not zero, but it's very, very low. That is lower than us getting our new Sunday morning cartoon cartel hippos off the ground. <laughs> so first we want to establish these things we're concerned about. Like what, what's the actual percent likelihood? Because something that has a 
about the same chance of happening as a random meteor strike. We don't need to put a ton of thought and concern into. But then the other question is, if it were to happen, how big a deal would it be? And obviously, getting torn asunder by a cartel hippo would be real, real bad, but it's super not likely to happen. What we're typically looking for when we're trying to assess risks is things that are both reasonably likely to occur and that also would be very, very bad if they happened so that we can put safeguards in in place. And let's look at an example that I bet you experience all the time. Unfortunately, when you drive anywhere, your likelihood of getting in some kind of car accident is is higher than you'd think. It's, it's actually not all that low. Driving, at least in the United States, is not a terribly safe activity. But there's a reason why your car is set up with all kinds of safety equipment, including safety belts and airbags and, and sensors and whatnot, is given that this really could happen, we're going to try and lessen the impact of what might occur. This is actually a really good adaptive skill-based way to approach something. I probably need to drive but I'm afraid of the worst case scenario. Okay, let's look at it. What's likely? Well, what's likely is you know, sooner or later, I'm going to have some kind of minor fender bender. Well, what do I need to have in place? Well, I need to wear a seatbelt. I need to have car insurance. When we've answered those questions, we're actually doing really well. We, we've dealt with risks in a really good and mature and adult fashion. We should be proud of ourselves. And then that can lead us to the other side of this, which is another skill we need to develop. Are you considering the best possible scenario? If you're going to devote a ton of time to the worst possible scenario, I think you owe it to yourself to consider the good stuff that could happen, too. And I want to encourage you for two reasons on that. The first is it's not fun to think about the bad stuff. It sometimes might be a good idea just for planning purposes. Like, you know, I I should wear a seatbelt because some drivers are not paying attention. It is fun to think about the good stuff. You deserve the fun of thinking about the good things that could happen. I want you to have that fun. We want you to have that fun. You should have that fun. But the second thing is, if you don't daydream at all about the good stuff, if you don't consider the good stuff as possible, you won't prepare for it. And just as you need to be prepared for the bad stuff, this is why you wear a seatbelt, you need to be prepared for the good stuff too. If you're going on a date and you're not taking a breath mint with you, you have not considered the possibility that this date could end with a lovely kiss goodnight. If you think there's a chance this date could go really, really well and end with a kiss goodnight, you're going to make sure to carry a breath mint with you. That's what a smart person would do. So if we're not spending any time imagining the good stuff that could happen, A, we miss out on a lot of fun, but we also miss out on being ready for those good things so that we can actually act on them. I think it's a really, really good point. Um, and another thing you you miss out on when you focus on this stuff is the possibility of getting to a solution. Like, you know, you said my brain automatically goes to the, the worst possible scenario and certainly I've been there. But one of the things that I, as I've tried to pull myself out of that is, um, not letting your brain call the shots in the sense of just letting it run where it will, because there is, and can be a small utility to considering, uh, negative scenarios. And as Jed points out with the driving analogy, that can be to take some preventative measures. You say, well, gosh, um, you know, it gets cold up here. Uh, what happens if, if I leave the, the headlights on and my battery runs out and I'm stuck? That would be bad. Okay, I, you can get a battery uh, jump pack for about 120 bucks. Put that in the car. Keep that charged up. I, I thought about this is a bad thing that could happen. Here's a mitigating step. Okay. That's, that's probably fine. The part where it becomes kind of crippling is, Oh gosh, I know I already got the thing, but man, if the battery runs out and what if it, what if it goes, what if it's really cold and what if I can't put the thing together without taking my gloves off? And what if at that moment a plow is going by and buries me? And what if they never find me? And what if I, my, Corpse is frozen and they find me in the future and unfreeze me, but I don't know anyone in the future. What's going to go on? We've, we've pushed past where we can have a solution here. (laughs) How will I live? (laughs) Now we're just writing our own weird, uh, fan fiction, self fan fiction for the gospel coalition to print and nothing good's going to come of it. 
I think I think when you get in a situation of and I again I've this is me speaking from experience of being kind of a a negative or a catastrophic minded person, there's a small part of you that doesn't want to let go of that because you think, well, that's my superpower though. What if I, you know, I come up with it's kind of uh, the Sherlock Holmes, but for all the bad things that could happen to me, I'm constantly running the scenarios and figuring it out. The thing is, you, you don't need the emotional experience of the terror of what if this happens to come up with a plan. Plans tend to be pretty simple. Carry an umbrella, have jumper cables, wear your seatbelt, you know, have a, have a phone charger with you in case your phone dies and you don't uh, know where you are. So you need to use the maps. These you can go into Starbucks and plug your phone in. These are good things to think of, but fairly simple. But as Jed points out, you, you need to be able to shift your brain into something else now. Your brain is only down that one track. And uh, what good could come of it is is a re- really, really good place to do that um, because you're not if you're not being proactive about it, you're what you might know of yourself. If you wrote this question in is that your brain is not going to hit the point of saying, well, that's that taken care of. I could do something else now. You're going to have to be a little more active in getting your brain to jump the track and do something else now. So you need to to feed that in there. And part of that, as again, as I found over the years of dealing with very similar issues is knowing when you've hit what you can do. Yep. Oh no. What if it rains? Take an umbrella, wear shoes that you won't have to worry about getting ruined. If you step in a puddle at that point, you have to find something else in this day to be excited about and push on through. Because if you don't, you're just going to get stuck in. But what if it, what if the rain turns to hail? What if I get struck by lightning? What if, <laughs> what if it rains under my umbrella somehow? What if I catch? Oh, is it, there's, yes, there's a billion bad things that could happen. As Jed points out, statistics exist. Yeah, probably going to be fine. You'll be inconvenienced at worst. <clears throat> and one thing I like about this is I think the the area where this lives is often when you know just enough to know that something bad could happen. Yeah. To go back yeah. to, to the car analogy, like I, I I don't I don't know anything about cars. I just know that this this would be bad. Okay, that's that's fine. You you could learn something. Again, you could look up, is there a way to start my car without having to have someone else jump it? Yes, there's a jumper battery pack. Cool. You could you could look up a video on YouTube about how to change your tire if you get a flat tire. You could also spend in the United States of America about a hundred dollars a month and get a triple a membership and they'll come do all that crap for you. Yep. Which I believe is their official motto. <laughs> Leave the crap to us. That's right. That's uh, you know, the, the spiral, we, what we're trying to control is the spiral. And yep. Jed gave you some great ways to do that and look, focus on the positives. And I think knowing when you've hit that stop, planting your foot for yourself and saying, okay, considered the bad scenario. Here's what we can do. Here's some other resources we have. Time to stop letting this run my life. Yep. yep. It's a great way to think. And neither of those things are going to come naturally. Neither of those things are going to be fully formed, but they're, they're places to start. And as you get better at it, you can move on from that. The one other thing, and it, it, you know, it comes, <laughs> dude, right off of what you're saying, which is awesome, is I don't think we acknowledge very often the fact that learning how to ask for help in a way that is functional and that we're comfortable with is another skill we kind of have to learn over time. Yeah. You know, Matt and I have both spent a lot of years working with people that are going through like major league emergency problems in, in their lives. Like I don't have a place to live. I don't have food to eat. I, you know, things are super bad. Right. And you would think that extreme needs would in some way, you know, it would like quicken the mind and you'd like really know how to ask for help because you really need help. That's not true. Nope. Um, with incredibly severe problems, (laughs) There are many, many, many people who on all kinds of different levels are not very effective at seeking help or asking for help. And so the thing about life on planet Earth is we all need help, like (coughs) setting aside all the rugged individualism stuff for a moment. We all need help. And that's actually one of the benefits of having friends and family members and loved ones and living in a larger society is that help is available. But you knowing how to access help again in a way that's both functional and that you don't feel embarrassed about. 
that's a skill that's developed over time. It's actually a really, really good idea to mm-hmm. figure out small ways in your life to be asking for help regularly so that you're sharpening that skill and you're remaining comfortable with it. Because if a crisis were to hit, God forbid, you want to know how to pull that trigger and not have it be an extra stressor on top of everything else of like, I know I need help, but I don't really know how to ask and I don't know what words to say and I don't know if anyone even wants to help me. We can build that skill when it's not super important so that we know what to do and how to do it when it is super important. That's right. You have to know when to ask for help. For example, if the devil is trying to kill you on a passenger <laughs> flight, uh, you got to ring the call button, get to the nearest microphone, start start singing your gibberish <laughs> so that the devil will stop trying to murder you, and you can go back to enjoying a movie that came out two years ago on your in-flight movie. Very important stuff. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you have a question for us, set podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Hey, the song this week, we go into the Jed Brewer archives. Oh. Great song. Record live at the bridge called Greater Is He. Got that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing to do about it. Just took me